you greatly rejoice, not in their tribulation, but in what just went before. But you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. And that may sum up some of your life right now. You may be in manifold temptations. If you're not, those temptations may be coming, or maybe you've just come out of a very difficult season. And I pray that God would use His Word to help us center our faith upon Him and His promises for our life. Let's pray together this morning and ask that God would show us and reveal to us His will. Father, we come to you this morning and we love you and praise you. And we are so thankful that we have so much to praise you for, God, that you have been so good to us and that we have so many blessings that even in spite of the hardships that we may face in life, that there's always the things we can look up to you and say, thank you, Lord. We don't deserve anything that you give us. And we thank you this morning that our life is in your hands, that our eternity is in your hands. Father, we thank you that you are a safe keeper of our souls. Pray that you would give us a thankful heart this morning and truly do give us the grace to trust you more. We ask all of this in the precious, beautiful, strong, glorious name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. Well, let's look at that verse again in verse 6. And Peter, writing to these believers, he says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. You know, the world is not as... God has created it. God created the world perfect and holy and without sin and without anything in it. Adam and Eve were innocent. They were walking with God in the garden. Everything was as it should be. But because of their sin, we now live in a fallen world. And because of this fallen state of the world, we all face troubles and tribulation. Every man born of woman, the Bible says, is a few days and full of trouble. And we certainly know that to be the case. No one is free from problems and difficulties, trials and tribulations, adversity and hardship. Rich or poor, strong or weak, believer, unbeliever, no one escapes the tribulations and the trials of life. I heard about a man one time, he said he tried to drown his sorrow in alcohol. Somebody said, well, how did that turn out for you? And he said, well, it turns out my sorrows are good swimmers. They didn't drown. And it's, it's the case with whatever you use to try to drown your sorrows, whatever you try to use to escape reality, the truth is that we face hardships and our sorrows are good swimmers. We have problems in our nation today. You turn on the television, it's easy to get depressed as you look at all the problems that are happening in America today, all the problems that are facing our nation that it seems it would require the wisdom of Solomon to work these things out, and it doesn't appear that there's anyone with the wisdom of Solomon. We have international problems that baffle the greatest minds in the world of how to solve these problems. There are domestic problems. There are problems of morality in our nation, and there's financial problems, and maybe you're facing some of these things in your life. We all face trouble to various degrees. But there is a difference between the problems faced by a believer and the problems faced by an unbeliever. There's a difference between the trouble that an unbeliever faces in life and the trouble that a believer faces in life. And it's simply this, that a believer can cope with and manage those problems by trusting in the promise of God. The believer always sees a way out. Isn't that true? We may not see it at moments in our life, but we look to the Word of God and we see that in the midst of the troubles that surround us in life, we see a way out and it brings us hope. We see a shining light at the end of the tunnel and some people don't have that, some people do not have faith. 
There was a famous painter one time, he was teaching others how to paint, and he told the class, he said, whenever you draw a wooded area, always make sure that you draw a way out, or you will discourage the viewer, and you will put them in the wrong state of mind. And so if you're going to paint a really good picture of a wooded area, paint a way out. Well, Peter here gives us a wooded area. He shows us the the trees. He shows us the problems. He realistically shows us the forest that we're in, but then he also paints the way out, and it's by the promises of God. And so we want to talk this morning about what Peter is telling us about tribulation, suffering, and sorrow. And we're going to talk about four things this morning. First of all, we're going to see a conflict. Peter tells us, realistically, this is what the world is like. It's not a Hallmark movie. It's not uh, you know something like that. It's not a Hallmark card. It's real life, and Peter's going to confront that and show us the conflict. But we're also going to see a consideration. Now, I want you to notice as we look at the text in a moment that that consideration is that there is a necessity for the trials that we go through. It's not just haphazard. It's not happening by chance, but a God of providence, a God who's in control, is working all things out for our good. And then we're going to talk about, after talking about that conflict and that consideration, we're going to talk about a comfort that these problems are only for a season. And then we're going to talk about the complexity. And I want to go ahead and tell you, the Christian is a complex person because, as we're going to see in this verse, a Christian is one who can be both heavy and rejoicing at the same time. And we're going to look at how Peter draws that out. So first of all, let's look at the conflict. Look what Peter says. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. Peter admits the problems in life and he attempts to deal with it. But I want you to notice something that the Christian life is no gloom and doom message. Sometimes we just, oh, we're Christians. Life is horrible. It's just going to be that way. But notice Peter says, if now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness. There may be no necessity at this time. God gives us many good days. Amen. God gives us far more than we ever deserve. So we shouldn't just hang our head and say, oh, life is hard, life is miserable, and we're just going to live in in turmoil every day of our life. Peter doesn't say that, but he recognizes that there are days like that. He recognizes there are times in our life, there are seasons when we may need to face trial. We may need to go through tribulation. And so he says to them, you are filled with joy, even though now, perhaps, if need be, You are filled with heaviness through manifold temptations. I want you to think about the word temptations for a moment because we often misunderstand what that's talking about. We read that really with a a, a kind of a one-sided interpretation, and we always think of temptation as a solicitation to evil. But the Bible uses that word in a couple of different uh, meanings, and one of those is just trial and tribulation. Peter's saying if you're facing trial, if you're facing tribulation, if you're going through these hardships, and that's what the word temptation can mean, but it can also mean a solicitation to evil. Now, we know God never solicits anyone to commit evil. We understand that, and yet we still pray that God would not lead us into temptation because we're using it in the sense of trial and tribulation. God, we know we're weak. We know we can't stand the test. And we know there is a connection between trials and solicitations to evil. God never does the soliciting to evil, but God will allow you to go through a trial. And yet, because of our weakness and because of Satan, 
Sometimes those trials can turn into a solicitation to evil and be used that way by Satan alone and our own flesh. And here's how that works. Sometimes we face trial, we face tribulation, and in that, in the midst of that, you're tempted to doubt God's love for you. And in that way, a trial becomes a temptation to commit evil. But that word means both trial and tribulation, and it also means solicitation to evil. But we're talking about the trial and the tribulation that we may go through in life. And Peter says that that's very real. Trials can come from God and trials and tribulations have a purpose in our life. Now we notice the word here. and It's a very interesting word. Manifold temptations. It's how the King James Version translates it. Manifold temptations. And that word means variegated or it, it can also mean this. Many colored trials. And it's not just referring to the different number of trials and the various number of trials you may go through in life, but it is also, I think, referring to the degree of trial. Sometimes we have trials that are they're not that bad. They're a little difficult. They cause us a little concern, but they're not extreme. And then sometimes we have extreme trials. And so these are the manifold, variegated, many-colored trials that we go through. And the Greek word is especially interesting when you look at it, for it is the word poikolos, P-O-I-K-O-L-O-S, poikolos. And it's the word from which we get our word polka dot. That's where we come up with this idea, and it means many colored. So when you think about a polka dotted shirt, it has many different colors, many shapes and sizes. So our life is marked by many different size trials, many different colored trials, and we couldn't even go through and list all the various trials that we face We do face trials in life. No one has a worry-free, care-free life who's walking with Christ. Remember the words of a famous preacher named Joseph Parker. And he once said this to young preachers. He said, always preach to the suffering and you will never lack a congregation because there's a broken heart in every pew. And I do believe that in many ways that's true of us and it may be true of you today. And I want you to notice something else here. Not only do we face these temptations, these trials, these tribulations, and not only are they used by God for a purpose, which we're going to talk about in a moment, and they are manifold, but also they lead to heaviness. Look at what Peter says. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness because of manifold temptations. And we say, well, you know, sometimes we say, well, you know, Christians shouldn't get heavy heaviness of spirit. Christians ought to rise above it. They ought to just toughen up and realize, hey, God's in control. But Peter says believers endure heaviness because of their trials. In other words, it's not wrong to feel it. It's not wrong to have sorrow because of things that strike us in life. It doesn't mean you're an unbeliever or you're not trusting God. You ever had somebody tell you, well, just trust God. Don't don't have a broken heart. Don't be filled with sadness. Don't be heavy about this thing. Trust God and give it to Him. Well, you may trust God and give it to Him and still feel it. We're not Stoics. You know what a Stoic is, just somebody who acts like pain's not real. You go to the doctor and you get the shot and they say, man, you were Stoical because you just endure it and you bear it. And some people act like Christians are Stoics. They just bear it. They just toughen up. They don't feel it. No, Peter says Christians feel it. Christians hurt. Christians have heaviness in their heart because of this. And so when we are dealing with somebody who is facing hardship, we need to do that compassionately. We don't need to just be cold and and treat their problems as trivial and say, well, you know, God's in control. It's all right. Cheer up. 
Sometimes we need to realize that, that believers endure heaviness and trials are hard and we do not trivialize their pain, but we have sympathy for them because Christians experience pain. The only difference is we shouldn't be crushed by that pain. So if you say, well, I'm facing this trial and it's really hurting and it's really hard and sometimes you know, I get alone and I just can't help but cry, that doesn't make you some kind of weak Christian or a bad person that's not trusting God. Peter's writing to these faithful believers who are so faithful, they're enduring persecution for their faith, and yet they're in heaviness because of these trials. So that's the conflict. There's a conflict in our life. But secondly, I want you to notice the consideration. Peter says this, "...wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season..." And I want you to catch these words. If need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. There is a need be for the things that we face in life. There's a necessity. There's a purpose. There's a requirement that we require from God sometimes to be tried. We require sometimes the chastening hand of God. Sometimes we, we need something in our life to test our faith. And that's what Peter says. If, if, if it need be that you're in heaviness, not only is there a necessity for the trial, but there is a necessity for the heaviness that comes with the trial. God would exercise your faith with the heaviness that you feel. There's a necessity, if need be. Now, there are a few opinions about why. You know, we all, all ask the question, why? Why did this happen to so-and-so? Why did this affliction come into my life? Why did this affliction come into the life of someone I knew? Why did this person who's faithfully serving God, why on earth would they be enduring this trial? And there's only a few answers that can be given at the end of the day. There's not many people left in the room with an answer. There's only a few possible answers, and we're going to discard a couple of these when we look at Scripture. But here's the few popular answers. Only one of them is the right one. But one of them is this. Well, God can't help it. You ever heard that answer? There's a, a group of Christians today, uh, a group of, of, of teachers and, and uh, thinkers who are suggesting that God really, He can't help it. He's not in complete control. Uh, he doesn't really have the reins of the universe. He's a big God, but running the universe, they say, is a tough job even for God. And it really gets out of hand on him sometimes, and he just simply can't help it. So if you go through problems, they say, hey, this is not God's will. It's not something that God's involved in. This is not what he wanted, and he really can't do anything to help you get out of it. He's standing on the sidelines, and, and all he can do is cry. And there's some people who find some level of comfort in that. I'm not sure how, uh, but they find some kind of comforting aspect of that, that God would help if he could. And so they just say, God can't help it. And that certainly is not a good answer. And it is certainly, I remind you, not a biblical answer. God, for instance, in Revelation, God is going to someday cast Satan into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. He could do that right now. God could Put the reins on Satan. God could put the reins on the trial in your life. And we sometimes don't understand why he doesn't. But the answer that God can't help it is not a biblical answer. Now, I admit, I confess, there are problems, difficulties, might I, I should say, difficulties with the doctrine of providence. 
When we say, well, God's in complete control, uh, he's a God of providence, everything is playing out according to the providence of God. The Bible says he does whatsoever he will in heaven and earth and in all deep places. In other words, the heavens, the sea, everything is working according to the purpose of God. And some people say, well, that, that introduces some difficulties. I don't deny that. There are some difficulties that you face sometimes emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, when you embrace the doctrine of God's providence. But I would suggest there are far greater problems when you reject the doctrine of God's providence. That raises many other questions and gives you no strong support for hope or trust in the promises of God. So that answer is not a good one, that God can't help it. And then there's a second answer some people give, and they say God doesn't care. That's why you're asking a foolish question, they say, to say, why did this happen? They say, because God doesn't care, and they would argue that God is a capricious ruler who simply likes to flex his omnipotent muscles and put pain on people and see how they hold up. There's no rhyme or reason to the madness of life, and they would argue and present God as some kind of puppet master who enjoys watching us squirm under the heavy burdens of life. And this also is not a good answer at all. And it's not a biblical answer because the Bible tells us that God is love. That God, at His very core of His nature, that God is a loving God. And the Bible even tells us this, that God does not afflict us willingly. In other words, He doesn't delight in it. He doesn't do it just for fun. He does it because there's a needs be. And now that brings us to the third answer. God is a loving God, and there's a reason for the afflictions that we face, and it is a loving reason. God would never want us to go through trial unless there is a good reason. He does not afflict willingly, but there's always a purpose in the things that we face. Peter says you may be going through manifold, variegated, multicolored trials. They may be more than you can count, but there's a needs be for it. There's a purpose for it. God is working out a purpose. Now, what might some of those reasons be? As we think about this from a biblical perspective, what might some of the reasons for the trials we face, what might those reasons be? Number one, to shape our character. The Bible says that trials are like a refining fire. We're going to talk about that actually in a couple of weeks, maybe next week. It's like a refining fire and it takes away the dross. It it takes away the bad stuff in our life. And God certainly has a purpose to conform us to the image of Christ. And He uses trials and tribulations in our life to refine our faith, strengthen our faith, communicate grace to us, and cause us to be conformed in our character to the character of Christ. There's a second thing that I think, a second reason that God may allow us to face trials and it's to make us more useful. You say, well, how on earth do trials make us more useful? Well, for one thing, it makes us more compassionate. Have you ever saw somebody who didn't have any, they didn't seem to have many trials in their life. Everything went great. Everything seemed to be successful in their life. And even though they were a Christian, they came across a little bit uncaring. They came across a little bit unsympathetic. When you have, They're not the kind of person you would go to when you have a problem because they're very unsympathetic, very uncaring, and if you have any struggles in your life at all, they don't seem to understand because they never struggle. They always walk faithfully with God. They always keep trusting in God, and they don't seem to have any sympathy. You let that person go through trial and tribulation, and sometimes you'll see a different 
person. They can sympathize. They can compare. Uh, uh, they can compassionate, uh, be compassionate with somebody. They can care more deeply about them. And the Bible even shows us this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, the very comfort that we are given from God in our own trials is the same comfort we can turn and give to somebody else. And so because of the trials that we face, we are shaped in our character and we're also made more useful and compassionate to help other people. And then there's a third thing. We may need chastisement. Sometimes we need a good spanking and God will let trials come in our life to refocus our attention on God. You ever, I read somebody said one time, sometimes God puts you flat on your back so you have to look up. And we get so stubborn and selfish and arrogant sometimes, we're not looking God's way, and God will allow us to face trial and tribulation so that we might look back to Him and focus our attention again on the things that really matter. You know, I think about it sometimes, and I think I must, meet a, I must need a lot of special attention from God because He allows me to face certain things. And, and I think sometimes, you know, I'm not a very good Christian, but imagine what I would be if I didn't have any trials. I would just get so selfish and arrogant and away from God. And so we thank God that sometimes there's a needs be to the trials that we face. And then we haven't exhausted all the reasons, but another reason that we may face trial is for the glory of God. Simply for the glory. There may not be an, an answer that makes sense to us, but it's for the glory of God. I want you to think about Job for a moment. Do you think Job, did he have an answer that really made sense? No, not really. We get to read the end of the story. We read the beginning of the story. We know that Satan has been up there telling God, your people don't really love you. They only serve you for what you give them. And God's character and name was being attacked. And God said, I'll prove to you that my people love me even when I don't Protect them. I'm going to give you certain limited powers over Job to afflict him to show that he will praise me, he will love me, even if I take the fence down and let you attack him. And so all this worked out to where God's name was glorified and magnified. Now Job did not get to hear the conversation between Satan and God. He didn't know what was going on. And sometimes we don't know what's going on. We don't know the conversations that have happened Behind the celestial doors, we don't know the counsel of the Almighty, but there is a reason, and that reason is for the glory of God. So sometimes there's a needs be, not just for the trial, but the heaviness that comes with the trial. So we saw the conflict. You're living in the, in the midst of manifold temptations. We saw the consideration. There's a necessity for that. And now thirdly, I want us to look briefly at the comfort. Look at what the text says. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, I want you to focus now on those words, though now for a season, if needs be, you're in manifold temptation. There's a, a season. Our broken hearts do not last forever. Our shattered lives are not meant to always remain that way. Our sorrows and our hearts are not eternally wedded to each other, there is a separation at some point of our heart and our sorrow. Peter says that this is only going to happen for a season. Now, I want you to think about this for your own comfort and for the comfort of those that you love that are suffering. Even if your trials, 
even if your sorrow, your heaviness, lasted throughout the entirety of your life, it would still be short compared to eternity. And that's what the Bible tells us in James. The Bible says, what is your life? It's even as a vapor which appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And you think about the eternity that God has in store for you. You think about what Jesus purchased for you on the cross. When you, when you think about who Jesus was, he's the infinite son of God. His suffering on the cross must mean something significant. And I want to tell you this, because he's the infinite son of God, he could bear a penalty big enough to pay for all of your sin. And because he's the infinite son of God, what he purchased on that cross is an infinite blessing that you can never fully get your mind around. And the Bible says that eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. We can't imagine the glory of heaven that stretches throughout eternity. And God has given you the promise of a blessed eternity with Him. And then you look at life, and life is so short. And even if we were to live in poverty and disgrace and lack and suffering our whole life, it is so short compared to what God has given us in Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 8, verse 17, said this, I am persuaded that neither life uh, I'm sorry, he said, he said, for I am persuaded that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. So he says, okay, you got suffering on the one hand in life, and Paul knew his share of suffering, and you got the glory on the other hand, and Paul knew about the glory because I think when I read 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had actually you know, gone to the third heavens. And so he knew what the glory of heaven was like. He knew what the suffering of life was like. And he said, they're not even worthy to be put in the same scale. Don't even dishonor God by comparing the two. And then I think about 2 Corinthians four seventeen, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works a far more eternal and exceeding weight of glory. So Paul says, this: even if suffering lasted throughout life, it's still short comparatively to the eternity God has given us. But the second thing I would say to you is that most likely our whole life is not going to be made up of sorrow. Though What does the Bible say? Though sorrow may endure for a night, joy cometh in the morning. And that's generally the case that our lives, by the grace and mercy of God, our lives are not made up of sorrow and suffering. We generally have more good days than we have bad days. Is it not true for you? We've had some bad days. We've gone to the house of mourning. We've shed our tears over loved ones that have died. We've seen the hardest days we could imagine. And yet we've also seen the good days. And God is so good to us in the joy that he gives us. And so Peter is saying to us that this suffering that we endure is for a season. It's only a short time. And he may not have been just looking at eternity. He may have been seeing a way out, even in this life, that there is a day coming when you'll find happiness again. You'll find joy again. You'll find the good days again. It's not always, there's not always a needs be for you to suffer. And so we admit God is better to us than we deserve the trials that we face, we can be sure, listen to this, we can be sure they will not last a moment longer than is absolutely necessary for God to work out His perfect plan for our lives. God watches the temperature of the furnace 
And it never gets one degree hotter than is necessary for you to become the person that God is making you to be. No pharmacist ever weighed out medication more carefully than God weighs out trials in your life. He will not put one more ounce on you than is absolutely necessary. And we can trust in the promises of God. So we saw the conflict. We have many trials. We saw the consideration. There's a need to be for those trials. And we saw this wonderful comfort that the trial is only for a season. And now we look finally and last of all at the complexity of the Christian life, the complexity that exists in this verse. And it is simply this, that Christians can greatly rejoice even though they are in heaviness. You say, well, that doesn't really make sense. No, the Christian's a walking paradox. The Christian life is not some simple little cheap thing. It's something that's been purchased by God, and it is complex in its origin, and it's complex in its operation. Now I want you to notice that this joy of verse 6, wherein you greatly rejoice, it is a godly joy. You have to look back to verses 3 through 5. What is it Peter's saying you rejoice in? We rejoice not in the fact we got a nice house, not in the fact we got a nice car, not in the fact that we're healthy. We rejoice in God's foreknowledge of us, verse 3. We rejoice in the sanctification of the Spirit that works in our lives to set us apart for God, our calling by grace. We rejoice in the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ over our lives that has washed out the nasty, vile sins of our heart. We rejoice in the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus that makes us pure and holy in the sight of God, even though we are not pure and holy. We rejoice in the fact that Christ is alive and He's resurrected. That's what we read in verses 4-5, through five, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that we've been begotten again unto a lively hope, we rejoice in that we have an inheritance. We're not eternally forgotten. God's not left us as orphans, but He's provided an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away. That's the, first, that's the last few verses. We have to put it in context. We have a godly joy. And notice we have a great joy. The Greek word here for rejoice means a joy that expresses itself outwardly in exuberant triumph. Christians can get giddy and excited about what God has done. When's the last time you just got exuberant over the fact that Jesus Christ purchased heaven for your unworthy soul? And that you are someday, though sinful you have been, because of the grace of God and the mercy of Jesus Christ, you get to walk the streets of gold in perfect purity before God. Isn't that good? And we get excited about that. And we say, you know, I may not look like a prince down here. And some, in fact, sometimes because of my own sin, I look like a pauper. And yet God and his promises of grace has promised me eternal glory with Christ. We get exuberant in our joy. Peter doesn't just say you rejoice. He says you greatly rejoice in what God has done for you. And not only is it a godly joy and a great joy, but it's an unconditional joy. I want you to notice this in the text. This joy coexists with sorrow and heaviness. Here's the complexity. Peter says you're filled with heaviness, and yet at the same time, you're greatly rejoicing. 
Christians are not one-sided. We feel the pain of life, but at the very same time that our hearts are broken because of our loss and because of our pain and because of our, our, our sin and our heart breaks and we're filled with heaviness, at the very same time, we can rejoice with exuberant joy because of the promises of God's mercy and grace and all that He's given us in Christ. Our joy is not dependent on circumstances. Our joy is dependent on Christ. You ever heard the distinction, and I think there's some truth to it, the distinction between happiness and joy. Happiness is based on happenings or circumstances, and joy is based on something deeper. It's based on Christ. It's based on what God has done for us. So our joy is not based on circumstances. I was reading the Bible Knowledge Commentary last night, and they said this, Though trials cause temporary grief, they cannot diminish the deep abiding joy which is rooted in one's living hope in Christ. Does that describe you? I hope it does as you, as you look at the Word of God. And I want to read it again. Though trials cause temporary grief, they cannot diminish the deep abiding joy which is rooted in one's living hope in Christ. And you know that's true. Even though these trials cause you the temporary grief. And sometimes you, in broken heart you cry out and say, Why God? And yet, your joy is not diminished, that deep abide. We're not talking about a surface-level joy that gets flicked away by every little problem in life. We're talking about a deep current that runs deep in the ocean of your spirit, and nothing can diminish that river of joy that is flowing in your life. And I want you to notice this. This joy is in spite of our sorrows, not because of them. We don't say... Boy, I'm glad I'm suffering. We're not foolish about it. We're not destroyed by it. And all we mean is we're not destroyed, we're not distracted, and we know that God's promises are true because we as the children of God, and and we need to hear this. I need to hear this. I, I need to think about this. J. Vernon McGee said one time this. He said, we don't sit around talking about what the world is coming to We need to be sitting around talking about who has come into the world. And it's Jesus Christ. Sometimes, don't we do this? We sit around, oh, we just just bemoan, what is the world coming to? Now, we should be concerned about the state of the world. We live in this world right now. We need to love our neighbors and try to build a better world. But sometimes we just sit around and really unbelieving like, we just, oh, what the world is coming to. It's just, it's terrible. But we need to get excited about who has come into the world, the Son of God. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. Jesus has come here and He's purchased heaven and eternal salvation for anyone who believes and trusts in Him. And so the conclusion to all of this, and you ought to be happy and rejoice with exceeding great joy about the word conclusion. It's okay to get exuberant that it's almost the end. The conclusion is simply this, that though in life we have problems, heaven is before us. Heaven is before us. Our best days are yet to come. Somebody said, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? And the song that we love says, earth has no sorrows that heaven can heal. There's truth to that, isn't there? Earth has no sorrows that heaven can heal. But not only is heaven before us, but here's the other side of that, that now everything that happens is working to our good. Romans 8.28 says, 
that we know that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. So we say, God, why why do you not plan good for my life? And God says, I do plan good for your life, and I'm working it out. And grace will see you through. Now I want to show you something wonderful that happens when you compare Scripture with Scripture. 1 Peter 1.6 talks about manifold temptations, manifold trials. And now when you look over at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. And Peter writes this. As every man has received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Just like trials are multifaceted, multicolored, so the grace of God is multicolored and multifaceted. And one writer put it this way, there is a shade of grace for every shade of sorrow. There is a plaster made of grace for every wound of pain. For every manifold temptation that you face, there is the manifold grace of God. Your sorrows can never outrun or outpace the grace of our loving God. Now I want to ask you this. Do you know this hope of heaven of which we speak? Are you reconciled to God through the death of His Son on the cross? Have you trusted and put the welfare of your soul into the hands of Christ and said, I'm not good enough to save myself. I'm not ever going to be able to work my way to heaven, but I trust the works of Jesus because he did enough. And if you trust him and you put your your soul into his hands and you trust him as your sin bearer, you don't try to work out the own consequences, but you trust Jesus as your ticket to heaven. Have you done that? And if so, you do know this truth. And you know Christ is the captain of your soul. And I want to close with this because as we face the hardships of life, there there was this man named William Ernest Henley and he wrote a poem called Invictus. This is the world's response. And this is about the best they get. And it sounds real tough, but there's really not much in it. It says this, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. By the way, this was the last words of Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma bomber, as he before he was executed. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. William Ernest Henley. That's quite an unbelieving poem, quite a bold statement. But I dare say that it did matter how charged with punishment the scroll. It did matter how straight the gate, because no one's the master of their own soul and no one's the captain of their own fate. Dorothy Day, a Christian writer, answered Invictus in this way. Listen to her version. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since His the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, 
that life with him and his the aid that spite the menace of the years keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleansed from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Have you trusted him with your eternity? And then on the second hand, are you trusting him with your everyday life? Because that's where our joy will be enriched and it will grow as we trust him as our savior and as we trust him as the Lord of our life. We'll find our joy growing deep and rich and abiding. And I hope that it's true in your life. So I hope we can, as we're in the woods, we're not lost in the woods, are we? There is a way out. There's a light shining and we see the path and it is trusting God. And at the end lies heaven and glory and eternal peace. Let's trust him for those promises. Let's pray together.